0: Talking Books, on South 106 to 108. One of the, the sort of interesting parallels we found when we were writing this, this book was the, the notion of a thought experiment, um, which is one of the when you have these really difficult uh, questions that uh, sometimes in sort of science, there seems to be no way to actually make an experiment to, um, uh, within the sort of current technology to, to solve it, but you can, uh, you can construct an idea in your head <laughs> uh, of what, what it would be um, and sometimes the real experiment will come out of that. And that's actually not unlike what, what the artists are doing at the same time. They're sort of Im- imagining things, creating sort of thought experiments of what, what it would be like if this was the case. And, and somehow that sort of sidelong approach to truth is what comes out of these unresolved questions. You, you, can, you can find interesting ways around them, and it's often just, a question, of waiting to see what, what will happen when you pose the question.
1: It is only when we are no longer fearful that we begin to create. The intriguing words of British Romantic landscape painter and watercolourist, Joseph Mallard William Turner. Hello, how are you, and you're very welcome to Talking Books, I'm Susan Cahill, it's lovely to have your company this evening. How important is creativity to art, science and religion? Does science make belief in God irrelevant? And will the question last as long as humanity lasts? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to tackle those questions with British artist and painter Roger Wagner and scientist Andrew Briggs, the professor of nanomaterials at the Department of Materials at the University of Oxford, whose new book, The Penultimate Curiosity, How Science Swims in the Slipstream of Ultimate Questions, has just been published by Oxford University Press. But first, let's meet one of the world's most famous landscape painters, Joseph Mallard William Turner. In the extraordinary life and momentous times of JMW Turner, BBC Arts producer and writer Franny Moyle writes, To the Victorians, Turner was an artist who was reclusive, squalid, seedy and eccentric. He was a gruff and friendly genius who had lost his mind and lost his way. He was the rags-to-riches urchin who had overcome adversity to create a body of work that was largely misunderstood. And yet it had genius at its heart. The Turner myth has proved a distraction from the greater narrative of his 76 years on this planet. Looking back at his full life, one can in fact see Turner not so much a man of his time, but profoundly the product of it. So who was Joseph Mallard William Turner and what made his art so special?
2: My name is Franny Moyle. My career started in television, where I specialised in arts programming. But since 2005, I've also begun to write books uh, about subjects I'm passionate about. My latest book is called The Extraordinary Life and Momentous Times of J.M.W. Turner.
1: Really well done on the book, Franny. It's a tremendous read. It's hugely interesting and so curious in parts. And I have loved Turner's work and I felt very up close to him in so many different parts of the book, which is um, not an easy thing to do. Uh, So hats off to you on that one. I might start off with a big wide open question for you, if that's okay. Are all cultural icons in some way misunderstood, whether it's the likes of Picasso, Beckett, Stravinsky, John Lennon, whoever
2: it is? I think there are two, two facets to, to that question. I, I mean, one, of course, none of us can ever understand anyone else fully, whether one's a, a cultural icon or not. We live inside our own worlds um, and filter things through our own perception. Um, So all we can try and do is get closer, which is something I've tried to do with Turner. I don't think all cultural icons are misunderstood. I think many cultural icons are completely in tune with their times. And, you know, there are terrific examples, like David Bowie, for example, who only just died, yet I think all of us feel that his work is enormously pertinent. But I think with Turner... He was misunderstood by his own generation. And I also think he is a little misunderstood by ours. And if you'd like me to expand on that, I think he was misunderstood by his own generation when it came to his late work. Turner was born in 1775, died in 1851, born a Georgian, died a Victorian. And really, the last 20 years of his career, he was producing a kind of work, a kind of painting that a great majority of his audience uh, and the critics was finding very hard to read. I think we find those late paintings very easy to read, and I suspect 21st century people coming to Turner love his late works most, and those are those great indistinct, um, some would say near-abstract, certainly abstracted canvases, were so loose and fluid in in the brushwork, so luminous and sort of misty. And of course, because we've had the Impressionists, because we live in a world where anything goes, it's easy for us to accept those canvases. What I think has happened for us in, in our infatuation with Turner's late works is we've sort of forgotten the, his early career, which which was different yet again, and so I think we think of him as this avant-garde pre-impressionist, when in fact he wasn't. I think he was trying to do something quite quite different and born from a different
1: tradition. Would it be fair to say that you were trying to rehabilitate his reputation in some way? He's been seen as, you know, clearly an artistic genius, but also as a bit of a madman. So I'm just wondering, were you trying to rescue him in some way?
2: Well, certainly what I wanted to do was make people aware of the full life. As I say, I think people look at Lake Turner and for those who don't know more, and why should they? After all, you know, art history isn't widely taught. It's certainly not going to be taught much longer, apparently, in schools. You know, unless one is very lucky to know the full works and the full life story, it's very easy to think of Turner just in terms of the late works. So I really wanted to show that there was a vast scope of work a real that really travels through a life. And Rehabilitate, yes, I think he has suffered from a caricature, really. I think, you know, again, a caricature that is sort of pinned on um, how he was perceived as an old man, grumpy, grunty, eccentric, maybe a bit reclusive, and I really wanted, again, to, to say, well, you, you know, that, that's really just looking through one lens. And actually, if you start at the beginning and look at look at the life properly, a different man emerges.
1: He had an unbelievable artistic vision and it's clear that he was very motivated, very driven. He was obviously quite disciplined. But how would you describe his artistic vision and within that, how he looked at the world? <laughs>
2: oh, my goodness, well, it took me nearly 500 pages to, to do that, so hard to do that in a soundbite. But I think you have to see Turner as a man of his time who saw life as a sort of great journey of inquiry. He was someone endlessly looking to the world around him and exploring it in paint, trying to find answers. And very early on, I think those answers are about being able to correctly depict the movement of clouds or the swell of a sea or understanding a morning light as opposed to an evening light. But, of course, as he matures and becomes a more thoughtful, mature man, actually he begins to explore far greater things, time, legacy, the rise and fall of empires. And, you know, those sensibilities go into the perception of his work as well, light you know, so his painting takes on, as it matures, a metaphysical dimension as opposed to a purely scientific and physical dimension that I think you perhaps is restricted to the early works.
1: Franny, you write very sensitively about his mother, Mary Turner, who was psychologically quite fragile. I know she was in several public asylums all through Turner's life. And it seems that this gave him a degree of embarrassment. And he he was also very conscious that he was driving his career. So you say that he had a very kind of secretive and clandestine type relationship with all women as a result, based really on how he had to hide what was going on with his mother in through his public life?
2: He certainly had a very complicated relationship with women, I think. He certainly, I think he was very insecure with women. He was a very small guy. You know, he describes himself as a young man, as as this little chap. He was small he wasn't handsome, you know, beady, beaky, bird-like. And I think perhaps because of... um, his mother's illness and perhaps his treatment as a child. Who knows? It seems that he was very insecure with women. As a result, he seems to hide away his personal relationships. And certainly, although he's very good at using his male friends for social leverage, you know he's befriends the great and the good, he befriends the great scientists of the day, who are almost all exclusively men, some of course are women. But, but what I'm saying is those professional men he doesn't hide from. It's interesting that though he has great friendships with influential and intellectual and society women, he never, he never takes that kind of woman as a lover. He, he gravitates to a much more simple, uneducated type. And again, I wonder whether that is about, uh, at a domestic level, a, a sort of lack of confidence, perhaps.
1: What did you make of his relationship with Hannah Danby? She was his lifelong housekeeper. Certain aspects of it are quite questionable. I know she star- she started in a service when she was just 16 years old mm. and she was with him for nearly 40 mm. years. But he left her in the dark on lots of things, but mm. clearly had sexual flirtations with her as well
2: might have. I mean, there is no question that she was dedicated to him. When he died, she was distraught. The descriptions of his funeral, if you read them in the press of the time, are of his housekeeper, bereft by the coffin. And he was particularly generous to her in his will, in as much as he was generous to anyone. So there is no doubt that they had a huge affection for one another and depended on one another. And he writes about her, very charmingly in letters to close friends, um, you know, using sort of affectionate terms. There is a suggestion, there was a suggestion from his contemporaries that at some stage there was a sexual relationship. I mean, after all, they were living in the same house together all that time. They were only human. It's interesting that when Hannah arrives on the scene, so does another illegitimate daughter. You know, was that actually Hannah's rather than her aunt's? Uh, Sarah Danby, who was his mistress at the time, you know, was that one of those sort of family issues that was sort of tidied up by the older woman taking on the responsibility for the baby. I don't know. All this is all this is speculation. But I think what we do tend to do is sort of sanitise the past. It's a bit like we sort of think, well, our parents never had sex, and then, of course, they must have done because we're here. And I think one tends to assume that... that people of that era were more proper, if you like, or less human than they were, in fact. And if Turner was living with a young girl for all those years in such domestic intimacy, it's not inconceivable that there was a relationship.
1: Yeah, I found some of the stuff that you wrote about in relation to Sarah Danby, his first or main mistress, let's put it that way, whether he had one or two children with her, and as you said, there's lots of speculation. But I did begin to wonder as I made my way to the end of the book, did he care for the welfare of his children, Georgina and Alvina? that, you know, his art clearly came first. And then later, when I was reading about uh, Sophia Boot, um, she was a widow, he met her, she was 20 years his, his, his junior, and it was his last uh, mistress. He was very covert uh, with his friends about her and very patchy in lots of different details. And it did build up a kind of a peculiar picture of him, even though you can understand what he was up to all the same.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, he's not a straightforward guy. Um, his work does come first. I think those women were people who were, you know, convenient for him to retire to, if you like. Uh, You know, when the day was done, they were people who could offer him comfort and simple pleasures. But he wasn't great at playing a father or a husband figure. He never married. He never officially legitimized the children. He did leave the money in his will at various... He kept changing his will. You know, he did acknowledge their existence, but one certainly doesn't get a sense that they were the sort of the heart of his life. One gets a sense, in contrast, that they were sort of satellites in his life. And certainly Evelina, I think, was left feeling resentful. It's complicated. It's hard to see him sympathetically vis-a-vis his daughters, I think. Having said that, the, he was clearly devoted to Mrs. Booth, because although she was secreted away, I think that was to do with him needing space from busy work. I, you know, he, he the uh, Royal Academy, of which he had a very senior position at the time, he was with Mrs. Booth was um, an experience he constantly found exhausting and stressful. His clients were demanding. He worked extremely hard. And Mrs. Booth sort of offered him just a release, a getaway. Uh, you know, he'd go down to Margate, be by the sea. Um, they would have fish suppers together. He would write poetry about her. And so I think it was not so much that uh, he wasn't pre- prepared to, to introduce people to her but that was the whole point It was to get away from people you know his life with her was his private life which he really did see as distinct from his professional life
1: and I imagine also a real break from prudish Victorian society that was so judgmental and restrictive Um, you write Turner was not a painter who spent much time depicting sex but neither was he cosy about it when he did you write extensively about the erotic drawings that were found and I know later some of them were suppressed and some of them were also burned by one of his
2: biographers.
1: But I'm just wondering, why do you think all the fuss was made over that?
2: I think there was a fuss for a very specific reason. After Turner died in 1851, the great critic, John Ruskin, um, had the job of going through and making the first real proper catalogue of Turner's work and really understanding what had been left in the studio. And, and it was in about 1856, I think, that um, Ruskin suddenly came across the drawings And it was also at that time that a pornography bill had been passed in Parliament. And Ruskin, I think, was quite terrified that the National Gallery, which was at that time uh, the place where Turner's drawings were being held and his work, of course, was being bequeathed to that institution, I think Ruskin got in a real fret that somehow this great institution might be accused of crimes of pornography for keeping those drawings. So he sort of secreted them away. He sort of wrapped them up in paper, said, keeping just for the purposes of evidence of a decayed mind, I think the phrase was, and sort of bundled them away and sort of hid them and pretended he'd burnt them. I mean, it was quite a sort of complex story. And I think it was that. I think he really didn't, know what to do with them. He felt they were risk to the reputation of the institution. I also think he was personally horrified by them. I mean Ruskin I don't know whether you know the story, but Ruskin and sex is quite a complicated
0: story. Yeah,
1: he seemed to have quite a um a difficult a first marriage which wasn't consummated. Correct. He's definitely was a bit prudish. Exactly. But was so he maybe very mentally fragile, so as a result he couldn't deal with anything he that couldn't went outside. Deal with it. And
2: I think for Ruskin, morality and art were bound up with one another. For Ruskin, great art had to be moral and so much of Turner's works he saw them as deeply spiritual and so when he finds in contrast to these deeply spiritual paintings, you know these very vivid and suggestive drawings, I think Ruskin is horrified because in his book those are immoral so he can't square that circle suddenly his hero is not the great moral painter he thought and the only way he can therefore make sense of it is to argue that turner was beginning to lose his mind
1: it's also a little bit naive when you look at it because turner as you as you mentioned in the book did grow up in the red light district and he was an artist so he would draw whatever he got as. Hands on, Absolutely. Basically.
2: I think he was compelled to draw the world around him and fascinated to draw everything. You know, I think he would, anything that suddenly caught his interest, and whether he is drawing for a physical reality, you know, the anatomy, the sort of study of movement, or whatever reason. I think also we have to remember he was born in the Georgian era and the Georgian era was really different in terms of its standards of morality than the the Victorian era that came immediately afterwards. There were lots of unmarried couples actually living together in the Georgian era. Uh, A lot of Turner's friends had, uh, for want of a better word, common-law wives who they weren't married to. It was not uncommon But that climate, that sort of liberal, sexually liberal climate changed very quickly towards the middle of the 19th century.
1: I'm just wondering, what did you make of Mike Lee's uh, Mr. Turner? Did you see it? Of
2: course I saw it. I mean, it's a hugely important film and, you know, enormously great grateful to Mike Lee and the team because I think they certainly raised the general public's awareness of Turner which can only be a good thing for me in my book But Um, all this
1: snorting and sniffing and coughing and yeah, it it was a very kind of dirty, messy portrait of a genius wasn't it?
2: I'm less convinced by that I mean he was described as a grunter He definitely was someone who, in later life, wouldn't stand on ceremony. But I think, without a doubt, there was a chatty and a humorous side of Turner that perhaps necessarily didn't come out so fully in in that film. I mean, he was a wonderful practical joker. And I think Turner, he liked to be a, a, a little obscure in the way he talked, but also he loved clubs and conversation. He did love being part of, you know, groups, so again, he's a complicated man to pin down.
1: What did you make of Peter Ackroyd's uh, biography of Turner?
2: Oh, I'll be completely honest; haven't read it. <laughs> well, there is your answer. <laughs> um. <laughs> there's sometimes a danger when you write a book, or if I did read it, I read it such a long time ago. I think I probably did read it, but you know, there's a, there's a real danger when you're writing a biography that you don't sort of imbibe the work of other biographers unconsciously. Now, now, of course, you have got to read some. And, of course, I did read some of the other biographies of Turner because, you know, I needed to for research. It would have, it would have been wrong of, of me not to because they're important works. But I, I, I didn't read all of them because, I, you know, I, I needed to find my own path a little
1: bit. I was looking over some of Turner's paintings this morning, and you, I might compliment you, you have some lovely uh, reproductions in, in the book. And I was looking at Calais Pier and Wreckers Coast of Northumberland and Rain, Steam, and Speed, which is one of his possibly most famous paintings. Mm. And it caught me thinking, what would Turner make of the Turner Prize today coming through the Tate? Because <laughs> clearly we get great vision and artistry and imagination and originality, but it's all so different.
2: Well, I think that's an impossible question to answer because, you know, I I think the 18th and 19th century art world was so fundamentally different in almost every aspect from our own world and what, uh, you you know, was considered art so different that, you know, honestly, I I don't think Turner would be able to understand the art of today you know, he, it just comes from a different point of reference. But what he did stand for in his time and what I think he would appreciate in the prize was he was always pushing boundaries incredibly fearlessly. He was always, from the beginning, an enormously confident artist, secure in his self-belief as an artist, even if, you know, not, not confident as a as a person, with women and so on and so forth, or socially. As an artist, he was secure in his confidence. And he was also secure in the belief that British art and British artists must plough their own path in the story of art. They must find their own ways of revealing the truth they sought to reveal on canvas or in stone or whatever medium they worked in. And... He, of course, more than anyone in his generation, moved towards a form of art that no one could match. I mean, his art was entirely unique by the end of his career. So I think he would understand the point of a prize that recognised artists ploughing their own furrow and trying to do new work and trying to break boundaries.
1: Lastly, Franny, does he deserve the title of Britain's Greatest Painter?
2: It's hard to think of anyone who might deserve it more. He's certainly one of the greatest. I find it very hard to find anyone who who comes close to Turner, both in the scope of his work, the quantity and level of output, the huge explorations he made across a lifetime on canvas. And actually, the more I've got to know his work, the more I understand the greatness of him intellectually. I mean, this is not just a representational painter. This is a painter whose work attempts to encompass great, great thoughts about fundamental themes, what it is to be human, what it is to live in time, you know. And Turner really does wrestle with the devil and God on high in in a way that... Few artists do, so I suppose I'm getting towards saying yes. And
1: that was biographer, writer and TV producer Franny Moyle. The extraordinary life and momentous times of JMW Turner is published by the Viking Press and retails for just under 25 euros in all good bookshops. Now, for any of you interested in viewing some of Turner's fine works, well, throughout this month, 31 of Turner's stunning watercolours are on display at the National Gallery of Ireland at Dublin's Marion Square. And the good news is admission is free. OK, let's settle into a bit of music. And when we get back, it's the penultimate curiosity with Roger Wagner and Andrew Briggs. <laughs>
0: New song 106 to 108
1: and you're very welcome back to talking books i'm susan Carl. it's lovely to have your company this evening okay next up we're going to unpack some of the big questions in life and hear what an artist and a scientist has to say about the rivalry between science and religion
0: i'm roger wagner and i'm an artist and a occasional poet and writer i'm andrew briggs and i'm a scientist
3: And I have the chair in nanomaterials at the University of Oxford. Nanomaterials really just means small stuff.
1: Well, the book is certainly not about small stuff, to say the least. Congratulations, Andrew and Roger. It's a a smashing read, and to use a term that you use in your title, it's hugely curious. I might just start off with a big, broad, white-open question for you, and Andrew, I'm going to throw to you to kick things off. It's a quote from the Greek uh, philosopher Aristotle. Aristotle once said that I would rather have a mind opened by wonder than one closed by belief.
3: Well, Aristotle is one of the people that we write about in the book because he's one of the people who illustrates the theme of the book, which is that where you have a culture or a community or even just an individual who's interested in the really big questions, questions about meaning and purpose and love and how God can be known. Time and again, in that sort of culture, you get a curiosity about the material world that led to the kind of way of thinking that we would now describe as science. And Aristotle was undoubtedly one such. He uh, thought about big questions, ultimate questions, and uh, he wrote an awful lot about what we now call physics and the physical and the material world. But I think that particular quote you have is probably a false choice between wonder and belief, because... Actually, all of wonder starts with belief. So when you're amazed at something, you think, it's, you think it's really wonderful. There are always some beliefs and presuppositions that lie behind that. And they, they could be false beliefs. And time and again, they are true beliefs. Or more likely, they're beliefs that are subject to being updated and refined in the light of the very things that you're wondering about and the very things that you might be curious about. And so this sense of awe and wonder, I think, starts with belief, but it also leads to belief. So it's a wonderful fuel for belief. So as, as one finds things around, facts, observations, things you look at, things you can hold, that are really amazing and evoke in you this, this sense of wonder, so I think that leads to a refinement of beliefs, maybe a correction of beliefs, So really, I think the two go much more closely together. They're more like the sort of left foot and the right foot that you walk on.
1: But why do you think it is that scientists and religious thinkers are kind of pitted against each other in some way? And that in a lot of ways, religion is seen as an enemy to a degree, of the progresses that can be made in science. Why do you think that is? Well,
3: it's all it's good great stuff, isn't it? You know, we love a disagreement and an argument much more than we love talk, hearing about people who are getting on together. So it's perfectly true that there are some scientists who, for whatever reason, reject God. And it's also true that there are some members of religious organisations who reject aspects of science. I suppose often the discussion is around the theory of evolution. But particularly in the UK, actually, particularly in England, we have a very, very strong tradition of absolutely top quality, very distinguished research scientists who've got a strong faith in God you know, have thought through very carefully how their science relates to that. And it has to be said also that we've got a very strong tradition of um, senior church leaders who've made themselves quite knowledgeable about the science, actually, and as religious leaders have embraced science, too there's a much stronger story of the engagement between the two than is widely told. And one of the things that we hope we do in the penultimate curiosity is actually to show that there have been lots and lots of cases like that. And uh, they've happened not only in England, but throughout the educated and Curious world, Roger.
1: You write curiosity at some level is as old as life itself. I'm just wondering, does all art start with a question?
0: That's a very interesting question. <laughs>